Hi, my name is Trip Gorman, and in this episode of Samia VC, I sat down with Ali Jamal. Ali Jamal is currently the founding director of First Check Ventures. He's done more than 100 syndicate deals with 3,200 unique limited partners. We discussed how he built this SPV empire, as well as his time working as a performance marketer for Rappi in Bogota, Colombia, as well as for Payclip in Mexico City. We discussed all this and more in this episode of Samia VC. Okay. Ali, could you start by telling the audience a little bit more about yourself and your impressive work history in Latin America? Thanks. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad somebody thinks it's impressive. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm originally from the U.S. I, uh, I grew up in the Midwest, and then I did my undergrad and master's at Stanford University, uh, an undergrad in economics, and then a master's in statistics. I actually started my career as an investment banker, so I did mergers and acquisitions for three years um, in New York. And then I moved back to Silicon Valley and started to work as a data scientist. I really wanted to get more hands-on and, and really kind of dig into analytical questions. So I spent the next three years working as a data scientist and you know I really loved it, but um, I felt like I wanted to kind of dig in even more and have more of an impact to kind of uh, really impact customers and, and, and understand what was going on with them. And so starting in 2013, I kind of made the jump into product and growth, and I've been there ever since. So I was a growth product manager at Zynga, the mobile gaming company, and then went to a competitor of theirs called RockU. I was at RockU for about four years, helped them grow from 40 people up to 400. And then in 2017, I got recruited by Agoda and I moved to Bangkok, Thailand to lead their marketing innovation team. Uh, I took over their mobile growth and then their display marketing and then all their special projects and new initiatives. Um, so they were launching their flights product and then their Airbnb competitor and then ended up uh, basically taking over their marketing for China on both the brand and performance marketing side. So I had a, a you know a couple teams in China on brand and performance marketing. And then within uh, with, within Bangkok, I had kind of the mobile growth and, and display marketing and, and these other special projects teams. Um, I was at Agoda for a couple of years and I saw the rise of, of a lot of really interesting things happening in, in Asia. Um, and, you know, particularly the rise of the super app and, and, you know, had watched kind of Gojek and, and Grab in, in Southeast Asia and then spending all this time in China, saw the rise of Didi uh, um, and, and Meituan there and wanted to be part of the next big super app and uh, had looked kind of globally and, and found Rappi and it, it just looked super interesting. So I reached out to the founders and ended up having some really great conversations. And um, in, in 2019, ended up joining them to lead their performance marketing team. Um, a few months later, a few weeks later, I think actually SoftBank ended up uh, making their big uh, billion dollar investment in, into Rappi. And I ended up having a team kind of across LATAM focused on you know, acquisition and, and, and retention marketing. And then I ended up actually getting recruited by a startup in Mexico called Payclip. And so I moved to Mexico City 
in, uh, in January of 2020 to lead Payclip's growth in performance marketing teams. Payclip uh, became Mexico's largest FinTech and first FinTech unicorn. They make it easier for merchants uh, across LATAM to accept credit card payments, um, which, which I thought was a really impactful business. Um, and uh, basically it moved to Mexico City, January of 2020, had an Airbnb for a few weeks, kind of organizing my life there, moved into my new apartment on Sunday. And Thursday, we started working from home permanently because of COVID-19. And so started working from home and ended up kind of having all this extra free time on my hands, right? I'd, I'd been used to kind of traveling to you know, 10, 12, 15 countries a year and going out and exploring, you know, Bogota and Bangkok and Mexico City. And all of a sudden you can't go out and explore and you can't really even leave your apartment, right? I'm kind of just exploring my, my, my bedroom and then and then the living room and the kitchen, right? And uh, I, I kind of needed something else to do. I'd been an angel investor on the side for, for quite a while, probably more than a decade at that point, and had been in uh, several other angel syndicates on AngelList. And I, I thought it looked interesting. And so I reached out to some of the different syndicate leads and, you know, asked them about their experience and, and, and what they did to get set up. And, you know, they basically encouraged me to, to go and try it for myself. And so um, July of 2020, I ended up launching uh, First Check Ventures as really just kind of a, a nights and weekends side project to keep myself busy during the pandemic. Um, ended up kind of growing that and, and left my job at the end of 2021 to kind of focus on angel investing full time. So I moved to Puerto Rico in, in January or I guess end of December of 2021. And uh, I'm now based in San Juan and kind of focused on, on first check um, and trying to be um, as early and as helpful to founders as possible. I want to ask some more questions about building a robust AngelList syndicate. You have done more than 100 deals with more than 3,200 unique limited partners. So I have three questions for you about that. How did you attract more than 3,200 limited partners? How did you get so many allocations? And what else should aspiring syndicate creators know about running an ultra successful syndicate like yours? I ended up getting a lot of LPs just because I was actually outreaching directly, right? And, and I think it's one of the things that, that you know, VCs always harp on uh, to, to, their, to their startups. And, and so you kind of drink your own medicine, right? You have to go and do customer interviews and, and sales calls and, and get people comfortable. So um, those first few months of first check, I wasn't doing any deals. I was really just out there talking to people. I was reaching out to, you know, ex-colleagues, friends, you know, people I knew from college, uh, you know, my cousins, my roommate from college's cousin, right? Like wherever I could go and find people, I would just say, hey, you know, it's Ali. He wanted to reconnect. You know, everybody's kind of bored during the pandemic. Do you have a half hour to chat? And, you know, some people were obviously busy with their own lives, but some people said, hey, yeah, let's, let's catch up. And I would kind of say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about starting you know, this new, this new syndicate, I've been an angel investor on the side, I've seen some cool deals, you know, I, I want to invest in these things, but it's easier if we do it as a group, do you want to maybe look at some deals and, and see what it's like? And 
There's no upfront financial commitment. Uh, I'm putting my own money into every deal and I only make money if you make money. I'm not charging a management fee. And so like our interests are, are very much aligned and, you know, it's just a easy way to get um, some more angel exposure. So, you know, one by one, some people said no, but, but, but a lot of people started to say yes and, and they started to join. And then, you know, I started finding some cool companies and, and I did a few uh, really, really great deals. And, um, you know, it kind of just flowed from there that, you know, we were doing some cool deals. I was talking to a lot of people, more and more people saw these cool deals They reached out saying, hey, I want to hear more about what you're doing. People in the syndicate were telling their friends or telling their cousin or their sister or their brother, um, their colleagues, right? And so having a lot more conversations with people and it kind of just expanded out. Um, and so, you know, I think the, the number one piece of advice that I would give to anybody that that's trying to start a syndicate is kind of one, you know, bring, you know, get to know the people who are investing and why they're investing. Um, you know, to understand who you are and what value you add. So I think the fact that I've had these experiences in markets like Southeast Asia, in markets like Latin America, that I've been working in startups and seeing big, big scale companies that these companies were now having people leave to go and, and do their own startups. I was just getting access to a lot of things that people weren't getting access to. So having that kind of unique pipeline of, of deals and you know high quality deals right so, so um I, I think having having that access to uh high quality deals is really kind of what separates you know uh, a, a great syndicate lead from the rest um at the end of the day right that that's what people want access to so i uh i, I think it, it's a matter of, of kind of both having that that really strong network and then i i kiss a lot of frogs. I end up looking at probably close to 300 to 400 decks a week. I talk to 50, 60 founders every week. And out of those 50, 60 founders, I maybe invest in one. Um, and, and that's after another three, four, five calls. So uh, you'll continue to try to find the best people to back and, and the best startups out there. Uh, I think really kind of separate you. Um, and I think that then resonates to answer your kind of question too. When founders enjoy working with you, when they see that process and they can start kind of hearing good things about you from the ecosystem, it's much easier to get an allocation. It's much easier for them to start to reach out with you. So you kind of treat everybody with respect and you listen to a lot of people and, and you build those relationships. And then over time, you're, you're, pipeline kind of just continues to grow and grow. Um, so I think that answers all of those questions, but let me know if there's something I, I forgot to dive into more. You did answer all of them. I'd be interested, interested to know now, what's your investment thesis and what rubric do you use to vet your potential investments? So when, when I first started out, I used to say it's kind of just whatever I like, um, you know, but, uh, I think after kind of running it for a couple of years and, you know, seeing 10,000 decks, I started to realize more about what I like. Um, and so I am 
typically trying to invest in like ridiculously early. So uh, I want to be investing ridiculously early in companies that are solving big problems with simple solutions. And I want previous business models where the company has traction and the founders know how to execute. And ultimately I want to want to put my own money into it. Right. Um, so those are kind of the, the, the big criteria. So, you know, very early, I think that's the, the, the best chance to get a, a large return as an investor. The earlier you can kind of get conviction, uh, the bigger the potential reward is. Uh, you know, big problems, um, I mean, to certain extent, it's probably somewhat defined, right? Like people kind of tend to look at these normal categories of TAM and, and SAM and, and SOM, but I think it's more than that, right? I'm looking a lot at problems in emerging markets and in a lot in Latin America. And there's a lot of things that affect everyday people um, that have been kind of solved in, in, in the US or in Europe or in China that are still you know, big problems in, in these other markets. Um, you know, It could be simple things like, how do I find an apartment? How do I find a mortgage? Um, how do I uh, get, how do I go and get something paid for without having a bank account? Um, how do I get a credit card when there's no credit cards really in my country or 1% of the population has credit cards? Um, how do I get access to my salary um, because I get paid once a month, but I have expenses you know, every day? Um, so a lot of these kind of fairly you know, routine questions that are really big problems that kind of affect every person. Um, you know, those are the kind of problems that I want to I want to work on solving. And you know, I, I think you can solve them through relatively simple solutions. Um, you know, these things have already been solved in, in other markets. And you know, I think a lot of investors want to think of themselves as, as geniuses, right? And they want to think about how they're smarter and better than everybody else. And, I really don't want to have to do that. I really don't want to have to rely on, on me being a genius to understand what the company is. I want the company to be simple enough that I can explain it to anybody in you know, a sentence. I want it to be something that people can just get because ultimately the customers need to just get it, right? The customers need to be able to understand why, why this is an issue and why they, why they should be looking at this as a solution. Um, so, so kind of big problems, simple solutions, very early, you know, business models that are kind of proven. So things where that somebody else somewhere has, has, you know, kind of been able to make a real business out of it. I think at the end of the day, people are kind of the same wherever they are. And so if it's something that already has existed somewhere else and you're just adapting it you know, slightly differently to this other market. Uh, it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and that could even be in more, you know, cutting edge technologies, right? There's things that exist in web one or web 2.0 that can still be applied to web three, or there's something that has worked uh, in the US that isn't, doesn't exist yet in Brazil or, or something in, in Europe that doesn't exist yet in Pakistan or India or, or Vietnam, right? And, and so, 
you know, a model that makes sense where, where, you know, you kind of know that this is going to make money and has the potential to get customers that people, you know, in general, like this sort of product, um, you know, traction, obviously the, the more traction, the better. And that can mean a lot of different things, right? Like how is the company itself kind of defining their success, right? Is it around revenue, right? Which, which is ultimately what most people are trying to get to, but it could be around customers or around engagement. Um, what is the progress that they're making and how can they kind of show that they're making that progress? Uh, you know, great founders, you know how to execute. Since these problems are big problems with simple solutions, it really comes down a lot to the execution. That's really where I think the boat gets created. And so people who had a history of success, a, a track record, um, you know, who know how to build the right kind of culture, I think are extremely important in, 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 in this sort of criteria. And then ultimately, you know, the things that I want to put my own money into, right? Like, is this something that I really want to exist that, you know, in, in my ideal world, is this a solution that, that I want to be a part of, right? There are some problems that people have that I just don't know if I care enough about or that like the solutions that, you know, I think are actually inefficient or, or don't really accomplish what, what I want to see the world do more of, right? I want to see a world that is more open and more collaborative and, and um, you know, more engaged. So if it's something that tries to disrupt, you know, information flow or something that tries to, you know, create a more protectionist society, it's not really what, what I want to invest my own money to. That's not really the, the, the world I want to live in. So tell us more about your roles as head of performance marketing at Rappi in Bogota and head of growth and performance marketing at Payclip in Mexico. Sure, sure. So, uh, you know, basically performance marketing is sort of the, the, the way that all marketing is kind of headed, where uh, we start to think about what is the impact of, of our marketing budget, right? And, and how are we kind of getting a return on this investment that we're making? So, you know, Rappi is uh, Latin America's largest super app, and you know, they uh, are trying to kind of both get more users, get users that are already there more engaged, people to continue to come back, restaurants to sign up, workers to sign up. And so there's all these different kind of parts to that marketplace. Um, and as, as the head of performance marketing, I am was basically responsible for understanding where our budget is being spent and what the impact of that uh, of that of that spend was <clears throat> and ultimately like what is the return that we're getting and are we meeting our goals for that budget and then uh, using analytics and, and data scientists and experimentation to uh, increase the efficiency of that machine so you know we are uh, it, it costs us more money to acquire a user than what we get in, in terms of our return in, in this market, but this other market over there is a better market for us. So let's shift our budget from one, one to the other. Um, you know, on Google, we see people order within, you know, six hours, whereas Facebook, it takes 12. So 
Should we shift our budget from one to the other? How does how does that impact what we're doing? Where's the the best way that we can get a return for our investment? Um, what is the best way to bring customers back? And uh, how do we kind of continue to create a more efficient marketplace? And then, you know, at, at Clip, it was really great because I kind of started my career as uh, or, or started my career in mobile as, as a product manager. And it was a chance to kind of combine my, my product experience with this performance marketing. So I, I love the performance market for team for Clip and that also kind of involved similar kind of components of, uh, you know, marketing and marketing budget and return and data science. But I also ended up leading their growth team, which was focused on kind of that user journey. So everything kind of related to the customer path once they kind of landed on the website and uh, using kind of product and engineers and data science to uh, create a more efficient uh, experience for, for those users. So um, experimentations around uh, that, that journey and, and, and you know, the checkout experience, the shopping experience, promotions, where do we land them? Um, that whole, whole kind of growth side um, what was really kind of my big focus. How would you compare living in Bogota, Mexico, and Puerto Rico? So, uh, you know, they're all kind of very, very different, actually. Um, so Puerto Rico is, is an island, obviously. Uh, still, it's a territory of the U.S. And, and so, um, you know, there, there's just a lot more, I think, familiarity between the U.S. and, and, and Puerto Rico. Uh, you know, Bogota uh, has kind of been overlooked, I think, by a lot of people as a tourist destination. They have this history, uh, you know, 30 years ago that, that kind of gets highlighted a lot in TV. That's not necessarily representative of what's happening now and, and happening today. Um, but I still feel like the ramifications are there that uh, they're kind of overlooked. And it's an incredibly beautiful uh, country and, 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 you know, I think the people are, are, are super nice and super warm. And I think because they don't get as many tourists, I think people are really excited when they kind of meet you as somebody who's, who's not a local and they really kind of go out of their way to, to kind of take care of you. Uh, Mexico city is, is, you know, the, the biggest city in, 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 uh, kind of North America, right? It's, it's it's more than 20 million people, so it's huge. It's sprawling. It's it's chaotic. There, there's everything you kind of imagine that, that you ever would want to do. Uh, you know, tons of different types of people. There's something for you, no matter what it is that you like to do. Um, you know, there it is. I think especially now over the last couple of years, it really has become a place where a lot of people are kind of going uh, to spend more and more time in. So, you know, I, th I think a lot of people from, you know, the U.S. are now going and spending a month working remotely from Mexico City. And you're kind of seeing uh, it become a, a very kind of uh, friendly kind of destination for, for a lot of people. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think the, the different cities kind of each have their unique benefits and, and uh, 
I've, I've really enjoyed spending time in all of them. How has Latin America and especially the technology and venture capital ecosystem changed since you joined Rappi in 2019? And what macro predictions do you have for the future of the region? I think over the last few years, we've really seen uh, a shift, right, in, 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 in a lot of big ways. Um, you know, when I, when I first uh, joined Rappi, I believe there was only five or six unicorns in, in Latin America. Um, and, you know, now we have more than 40. Uh, when, when I joined Clip, there wasn't a unicorn in, in Mexico. Now, you know, Clip is one, but there's also another three others. Um, so so there, I think there's four or five unicorns just in, in Mexico alone. Um, so we've really seen an explosion throughout the, the ecosystem. We're seeing it become more and more uh, popular with, with uh, VC funds. Um, you know, obviously SoftBank had their fund dedicated to Latin America, but more and more funds are putting people on the ground and, and having them uh, look at these different markets and different marketplaces. Um, we're, we're seeing uh, companies, you know, expand across Latin America as well. So I think for a long time, companies that were in Brazil were only focused on Brazil or companies that were in Mexico were only focused on Mexico. And now we're seeing more and more companies try to operate across, uh, across the ecosystem. Um, and I think there's just been a, a large uh, speed up in kind of development, I think partially because of, of COVID-19, where you have a lot more people that are digital, a lot more people that are digital nomads, a lot more technologies kind of getting adopted and uh, companies that are springing up around these, these ecosystems. You worked for Agoda in Thailand before moving to Latin America. What lessons can we learn from Asia about investing in Latin America? Yeah, I think... It's the same kind of lessons uh, across the board that, that uh, at the end of the day, you know, people, people are the same. And so people want their needs met. And the companies that are, you know, focused on uh, the, the real needs of the people are, are going to survive and, and thrive. Um, one of the interesting things I think you start to see when you look at, at Asia is kind of um, the emergence of, of you know kind of these mafias and this is like a, a positive mafia term right like the tech mafia uh, and you know i think that that's one kind of big thing that we're starting to see in in latin america as well and, and, and there's i think endeavor does some interesting reports on, on the impact of, of kind of several key organizations right and whether it's kind of new bank and, and and the ecosystem that's kind of you know, come out of there or Rappi or, or um, you know, now Latitude, right, where, where we're starting to see more and more kind of ecosystems emerge where uh, people are more collaborative and, and, and that ability to uh, have more kind of partnerships and more education and more discussion, I think is really impactful here. And, and I think that that's one thing that really has emerged in, in Asia that, that I'm excited to see um, really kind of grow within the Latin American ecosystem. Okay. Finally, I must ask Peter Thiel's famous question, but with a uniquely Samia VC twist. What important truth about Latin America do very few people agree with you on? When we look at the Latin American ecosystem, it's really easy to kind of just focus on 
Mexico and, and focus on Brazil because they end up making roughly 70% of the GDP of, of Latin America. Um, but I think the companies that emerge from Mexico and emerge from Brazil spend so much time in their own backyard that it's hard for them to really kind of adjust to becoming a multi-country company. Um, and so I think when we think about the companies that are going to emerge that are going to be truly, you know, across LATAM, I think it's going to be emerging from ecosystems outside of Brazil and Mexico. I think the companies that had to get out of their home market very quickly and, and build a play map, uh, a playbook and, and a roadmap of how to do that are, are going to be the ones that are really going to end up being uh, pan Latin startups. Okay. Ali, thank you so much for spending the time to be on my Sumia VC podcast today. Yeah, it was great being here. Thank you so much. Okay. That's the Samia VC interview with Ali Jamal. Be sure to subscribe and like wherever you view your podcast. Also, check me out on Twitter and LinkedIn, Crip Gorman. See you at the next episode of Samia VC.